This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. My guest this week, AJ Osborne, he's been in GoBundance for a while. He's a guy that I've kind of admired from afar. I heard him speak once in Aspen uh, at an event a couple of years ago. And over the last, I don't know, it feels like six, eight months, he's just become this, this ball of a brand, man. It's just like a snowball effect of seeing you, seeing him uh, as I talk to the audience, just kind of grow and, and become bigger and bigger. Doesn't take away from the fact that he was doing huge stuff before that, but he's becoming more and more, uh, more and more out there and it's been a lot of fun to watch. So he's the author of the investor's guide, uh, to growing wealth in self storage. He currently has in his companies over $200 million in assets under management in the self storage space. Proud husband and father with an incredible story. We're going to dive into all elements of. So AJ, welcome, brother. Thanks. Happy to be on here. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. Great to have you. Let's start with a little bit of backstory for you. So I know you're in Idaho. Are you yeah. from Idaho? Give me sort of a little bit of a background on you, if you don't mind. Yep. Born and raised Idaho. And I'm like a sixth generation. My family or sheep herders came over here. And um, my mom and dad came from a small town uh, south of uh, uh, Boise. Um, my father grew up in poverty, not like poverty like we talk about today. He grew up without running water. He, wow. They hunted to eat. Um, and my my mom would be what was considered, uh, especially to him, uh, the rich girl, because she was a farmer. So my mother was a farmer and they bred horses and she worked every day. Um, and then my dad got started in insurance um, and he started selling door to door because he didn't want to live in poverty. Um, and they had me. And so um, he did that and started selling door to door, then worked for insurance companies. And we moved to Boise. And then he started a brokerage firm and I followed in his footsteps. So I, I knew I could achieve financial goals through sales. Now, this worked out really well at first, but it became very evident very quickly um, that we were on something that I coined the treadmill, meaning we, every time you sell, you have to resell. There was never an end. And at some point, I was just like, Dad, we're not going anywhere. Like... We're running as fast as we can, but the moment we stop, our income stops. And it was a huge problem and a very big concern for me as I was growing a small family. We started investing in self-storage in the early 2000s, 2004, with a primary reason of one, depreciation, and two, cash flow. We knew nothing about real estate investing. We were in an all-cash flow business. Right. So everything was sales was uh, um, commission based. So we ate what we kill. Um, you know, I my first job, I, I had a few. I, I worked on farms for a long time. But my I guess my first more real job, I worked for Aflac. And after that, that was the last time I had a normal paying job, um, which I was a claims adjuster slash secretary. And uh, my boss came in one day and said, you know, 
AJ, I got to fire you because you are the worst claims adjuster and you are the worst secretary we've ever had, but our clients love you. So why don't you go sell instead? And so I was fired and I went and worked for her to sell. And then my, and I was selling insurance. My dad's like, what are you doing? Come over here with me. If you're going to sell insurance, move back here and let's sell together. Um, and so it was great when it started and it allowed us to gather income and put income in. But once again, it, it wasn't, first of all, it was not a steady paycheck at all. It was astronomically taxed. And uh, my wife and I, we had to live on a fraction of our income because at any moment, and it happened all the time, our, our, our clients got bought. They fired us for whatever reason. And we had trade up and personnel and I could see 30% plus of my income evaporate. Um, and so we lived on a very small amount. We paid for everything in cash. Um, when my wife and I bought our first house for, you know, $200,000 at the time, we had, uh, more than that in the bank account. So it was, we were very conservative, right? Because there was such a instability about our income, self-storage. I didn't like real estate because it didn't make sense to me at all. I didn't understand things like equity buildup and uh, multiples and refinance and things like that. I didn't. All I knew is there was a thing called dis- depreciation. But what I liked about it was, no. First of all, at the time, you got to remember, self storage was not popular. It was, in fact, it was the opposite. I was. We were told in uh, by one of our uh, people that administer our clients said, um, "You're." I don't get this. You're going from professional insurance sales where you're working with like the C-suite of companies to slumlord, right? They're like, you're buying a junkyard because that's how it was perceived. Banks wouldn't loan on it. Nobody wanted it. And it was a really difficult asset because um, it had this managing part of it that there, it, there was no options. So there was no third-party management. Banks wouldn't loan on it. We had to put tons down. It was actually real estate speaking. It was a very inefficient real estate asset. But we looked at it and I was big on doing mergers and acquisitions. So I was buying smaller brokerage firms and I thought we could do roll-ups, right? So sure. it was way better than selling individual clients. I could buy a batch of them, roll them up. And I viewed self-storage. I said, this is not a business, right? So I, I always say this, and I started saying this in the early 2000s, self-storage is a business disguised as real estate. And so we looked at it as this is a cash flowing business. It has products and market fit, and we could buy it and lift up the revenue, right? Through doing business stuff, marketing, uh, payment management, all, all different things that we understood from working and consulting with businesses and, and all that. And so this is important because when we got into the asset, it had nothing to do with normal real estate models. We had no investors, right? We didn't have anything like that. So if the asset didn't give us a huge amount of cash flow, then we couldn't do it because it had to pay not only the asset's bills, but because there was no third-party management or anything, we had to hire somebody to manage it, right? So we had to bring people inside. And then it had to try to give off enough money for us to reinvest. Well, in real estate terms, that's a lot to ask for, right? It's a lot. And this was in the early 2000s. This was at the height of when asset prices were going crazy. That's why we didn't invest in any other assets because we're like, this doesn't make sense at all. So what happened is we kept buying storage facilities, but the only focus we had was yield because 
so we didn't, I didn't even know how to make any other money any other way in real estate. So it was all just yield. So we looked and said, how do we improve cash flows? And when you do this fast, immediately, and because it's our money, we can't risk at all on a bad deal. So as we evolved, we poured all the money back in from our real estate to operations, nothing else. My father and I worked selling insurance for like six, seven plus years and more than that while we did real estate, never taking any money out of it because we didn't have an option. We had to get yield. The operations had to get better. We had to pour money into the operations to get yield better. That created a system in which we were so focused on yield, we started to really identify yield drivers, which made us better at acquisitions. Then we could find the best properties that had the most upside with the lowest downside. And we kept reinvesting. Well, this started to compound. And because we were so focused on yield, we just kept pouring our money back in and we created an a self-storage ecosystem, like I call it. And we started buying up companies that we needed to get yield. So tech companies, co-ops, we started buying all of these different aspects of companies in the business and applying them to our business. And it was helping us underwrite, it was helping us find deals, and it was helping us massively increase the yield. Well, then what happened was we started to see this huge equity in our properties because we were doubling the revenue. And you know that's when CPAs and everything come out and say, you know, guys, there's a way to get this equity out, right? And you don't really need to pay taxes on it. And um, at the time, you have to remember, no social media. Right, there right, right. was no information at all on self-storage. None. It didn't exist. Um, so we then said, okay, well, we started taking equity out tax-free. And at that time, it was a lot of money and people would pocket that money. Instead, we did it, did it again, still working full-time jobs. We yeah. used all that money, compounded it. We sold our brokerage firm, put that in. We bought other businesses and uh, we bought these larger companies in our operations. And we kept pouring it in while we worked for a national brokerage firm. So I worked for a huge Fortune 500 company, um, multiple billions um, for years. And I made them a lot of money. I grew their company, their location. I had a 50% margin. I was one of the highest growth in the country of their division. And they were paying me good money. And I was growing real estate. Life was good, right? So we're sitting here going, this is great. We can keep pouring money back into the real estate. I'm still living on my income. Um, and that pays for the bills by the big company. It's like, you know, I hope I don't do this forever because I'm killing myself. Um, but uh, it, it was working. And, and to us, that the dollar was so valuable that we couldn't not reinvest it. Because it was like, man, this one, this one dollar is first of all the tax benefits, right? But really, to us, I looked at it is that one dollar in one year was, or in three years, was three or four dollars to me, and then infinite returns. Because here's our strategy: we were buying massively underperforming self storage facilities in incredible markets, and then we were simply using like arbitrage to get them up to market immediately. How I looked at it was. Day one in my in my assets, I need equity immediately. I need um, so market standards didn't work until last year. I'd never bought a deal on the market ever, mm. and so we needed immediate equity, and then we needed immediate cash flow upside. Um, so there was no risk. 
um, at all, that if there was a downturn or something like that, we could cushion it, we could survive it. And the markets had to be phenomenal because the market, I don't expect markets to make me. I mean, the market goes up great, but that's not my strategy, right? But I know the market can kill me. And so we had to guard ourselves against that. And so we started leveraging this and finding out, once again, knowing nothing about other people, other real estate, what, what they were doing at all. And we were increasing revenue by 50% like in year one. Some In some cases, we were doing it even more. And then by year two or three, we're refinancing the money into non-recourse loans. We're taking it out and we're redoing it and throwing it right back into the business. So we have all of these assets that our same money now has bought a million, 1.5 million square feet in assets from this uh, small facilities we were buying at first. Cash flows huge. Our LTV was under 50%. And we regurgitated that money to get that compounding effect, right? As we were doing this, it just became kind of the standard process. We were buying up, building up. Within two to three years, we're refinancing, taking all our money out, putting it into a non-recourse loan, not changing debt structure. So a lot of people, they change the debt structure to make it off. No, the debt structure doesn't change. We're not taking on more debt. But the improvement in equity allows us to take 100 plus percent of our money back out. We reinvest that. We still have the cash flow from the asset because I had to have cash flow to pay bills. That doesn't work. So the cash flow base is going to change that much. We reinvested that money. And then we did it again over three years. And this had this ginormous compounding effect while we worked that allowed us to take all the side money and buy all of these uh, different companies and reinvest into the industry of self-storage. And we created a ginormous ecosystem um, of revenue management systems, proprietary technology, marketing. We founded and started the largest co-op in self-storage in the world, which is just behind the biggest REITs, which gave us massive buying power so we could act like the billion-dollar companies. Um, we sat on boards. I still do. We run those. We worked with the industry all, all while we're working our jobs, right? And um, it was really, we were kind of at the height of this in the middle of it. And um, then I, I got sick out of the blue. It was like nowhere, right? Like I'm in California, family. Um, I start to feel sick. We just had our fourth child. So me and my wife and um, three months. And I start to feel sick. I'm like, I feel weird. I don't know what's going on. Ignored it. We came home. I'm planting trees. It's summer's ending. We're going to go into fall. So I'm getting my backyard settled and my legs just start killing me. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It, and at first I thought it's because I've been planting trees and maybe traveling. Maybe they're sore. I ran um, the night before while I was in California. I went for a run and I was like, geez, I don't know what's going on. I'm super out of shape. I, I didn't run very long. So I ended up making a walk. And then within 24 hours, my legs didn't work and I was being taken to the hospital. And then within a couple of days from there, I didn't even say goodbye to my kids. My kids were asleep and I was in the tub because my legs were hurting. My wife went to bed and I couldn't get out of the tubs because they just stopped working from the time I got in the tub to not. Um, and she took me out, pulled me into the car, called somebody, said, go to the kids, go see the kids. The kids are asleep. I got to take Agent to the hospital. So I didn't even get to say goodbye to them. Went to the hospital a couple of days later. Um, I was um, put into a coma and then I was hooked on life support because I'd become paralyzed from head to toe out of the blue. Um, and I sat on life support for months. Um, then I went to a rehab facility. Um, I lost my job. I was fired from my job in the hospital. Um, and then I went to a rehab facility. My insurance company kicked me out of the, uh, stopped paying. So they kicked me out of the rehab facility. My wife 
took me home and my brother moved in with me to take care of me. They took me home paralyzed in the bed and uh, lied me in a bed and, and took care of me from there. Um, it was in the hospital as, as I was sitting there, you know, I, I like to tell this story because I, I was in the hospital. It's Christmas Eve, so it's snowing outside. I'm looking at the snow. I'm so excited to think about what the kids are going to get for Christmas, right? I'd already been fired from my job. And it dawned on me, I'm not worried about losing my house. I'm not worried about my wife having to get a job while she has a quadriplegic husband in a hospital. Um, I'm not worried about my kids not having anything. The only thing I was thinking of is what are my kids going to get for Christmas? Because the hospital was going to let me go home for three hours for the first time Christmas morning. They were going to, it was assisted, but they were going to let me go home and then they were going to take me back to the hospital. And at that point, I was like, this is so important. And this is not money. This is something totally different. And it was at that point that I made a promise to the hospital. I said, I'm going to share everything that we do, how we do it, 100% to anyone that will ever listen, because I think it's so important. Um, and then I said, too, I'm going to let other people participate with us because other people need to share in this wealth and income creation. So I got out of the hospital and uh, spent my the next four years relearning how to walk. I had to do occupational therapy, relearn how to do everything, use my hands. Um, and while I was in the wheelchair, I started up two other companies and the private equity side because I lost my job, so I didn't have anything to do. And I was terrified that I'd be just become this guy that just sat in a wheelchair. So I refused to do it. So I went sat in the office. I started up two other companies um, and the private equity side of our real estate arm that allows investors to come in and invest in our exact same process and doing what we were doing. Because I was so terrified that being paralyzed was going to define who I was because there, there was no outlook, right? They're like, AJ, we don't know if you're ever going to walk again. We don't know. It was something called Guillain-Barre yeah. and it was really bad. So there's a lot of people that have Guillain-Barre, but very few that get intubated. If you're intubated and you're on tubes for over two months, it's not good. Like it's something close to 20% don't even make it, they die. Um, and then above that, your odds of ever walking again, once you hit that two month mark, your odds of ever moving, walking again on your own just start to crash. It's just your body can't do it anymore. So um, I got out, I got, I left rehab because I was in rehab two years afterwards and I had leg braces and I had to have help walking. And finally they're like, AJ, you've been, it, it was three years after there. Like, you've been, after I was out of the hospital, like, you've been coming here for like three years. They're just kind of like, AJ, we got to tell you you're probably never getting out of your leg braces and you're probably never going to be able to walk on your own again. I was like, okay, I got my stuff, walked out, never went back to rehab again. And from there, I just worked with my kids. And every time my kids needed something, I wanted to be a present dad. I was in pain 24-7, 24-7, still am, I'm never not in pain. And at the, before, you know, the pain has gone down over the last four years. But at that time, a step was excruciating and to move, to just lying down was excruciating. But I said, I'm going to keep, I, I have to be a dad. And so my, my son, who was four at the time, I was really worried about him. He wanted me to take him upstairs and put him to bed. He wanted me to be a dad. And I'm like, I'm never going to tell my son, I'm not going to be his dad. And he would say, dad, he literally, I'd be holding him and I'd be using the cane. And he said, dad. I want you to hold me 
and walk like you used to. So I would put my cane down and I would walk through the pain and I would just make it happen. And because of them and everything, um, then I got out of my leg braces six months later. And um, then I've just been kind of going from there nonstop. My, my, my three-month-old, when it happened, who was my baby, who just lied next to me in the hospital, which was the biggest blessing ever because I couldn't see my kids because it was a horror show, right? Like, first of all, they didn't know for like a month if I was even going to survive. So they didn't even know what to tell anybody. They're just like, the doctor's like, we don't know if he's coming out of this. We don't know if he's going to lie. We don't know if we're going to have to pull the plug. So they didn't bring my kids in for a while because they go, we don't have answers. And he is basically level zero. His body can't sustain itself. So they ended up bringing my kids in, which was the worst moment of my life. I'll never forget it. Because my oldest child, who at the time was, um, and I think nine, she walked in and the horror on her face from seeing her dad, how she remembered or thought of him to being a quadriplegic hooked on tubes, looking at her from a medical bed. It was the worst experience of my life. It haunts me to this day. Um, so I didn't actually, like, it was really hard to see my kids. Um, but my baby, he didn't care about that. He just cared the baby. So they'd lie next to me. So why I couldn't see my kids, my baby would just lie next to me on my pillow and he'd use his hands to play with my lips. So that's how I interacted with my children. And I'd play with my baby who he couldn't move or do anything. He, uh, uh, tried to grab the tube out of my throat a lot. Uh, so we had to make sure he didn't do that. Nice. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> other than that, that's how I interacted with my kids, right? Wow. Now he's five now, yeah. right? Has no recollection of that ever ever happening. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a quick and dirty of, of the story. Well, and I've seen some images that you put, like you said, you've been ultra transparent. Your brand is ultra transparent. I've seen some images, very emotional uh, video images, hard to look at as a dad. Like I can't imagine yeah. going through what you went through. Uh, so folks can follow you and, and see your story. You're very open about it. It's on your website. Clearly you can yeah. talk, talk about Guillaume Barre on there. What was the, what was the root cause? Did you ever figure out what caused yes. the onset? Yes. Um, so um, I'm going to be ultra transparent with you here. It's something <laughs> I didn't talk about for years. And um uh, they may pull the podcast off of this. I it, I can't really even talk about it online uh, because somehow now I can't talk about what happened. To me. Oh, it's um, the V word. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. It's the V word. So um, <laughs> it, Guillaume Barre has triggers and the largest trigger to Guillaume Barre is vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the it's funny because the flu vaccine is the number one. Well, that and COVID vaccine, it's, it's, and like, can you told, say it? I don't know. If I know we're gonna I, it's like COVID. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I can talk about this here. It's we'll like, just go with it. If it gets people to know what we're talking about. running here and pull me out <laughs> kicking and I'm, I'm going to go to a prison. So, um, uh, I, I had multiple times where I got threatened to pull down my accounts because when somebody asked oh. online, I just told them and yeah, social media, they threatened, they said, you say that this is, again and we're, that's we're closing. Scary. Scary. Yeah. Wow. Very scary. Yeah. And so I, I didn't, so I've been very, you know, it, this is go abundance and I'm going to tell everything, you know, with you guys, but, and, you know, when people ask me about it, they say, are you anti-vax now? And I'm like, first of all, no, my children right. are vaccinated. I'm going to vaccinate my kids, but we learned a lot of things that do not, people don't know. They do not know. The medical community doesn't know. All of a sudden doctors treated us completely different. They put a a whole new regiment of vaccines for our children, which I thought was very strange. So all of a sudden, my child who had just been bored, the doctor's like, actually, you don't need to give him these vaccines for a year. We're going to spread it out over three years. And it's really not important at all. And it won't affect him at all. So all the vaccines that he would have gotten at six months, the 
said openly, no, it doesn't matter. You don't need to take it. It's just something we say. And we're going to spread these out over three years. And we'll only do it when he's super healthy. And all of a sudden, because we started learning about this. At the end of the day, 2% of people that get vaccinations, right? They have bad. It's not good. It's really, really bad. 2%? Uh, That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And uh, of that, you have a lot of people that are injured for life, um, like me, or they die. And what the government has done is we have a fund that's set up for vaccine uh, recipients. You cannot sue vaccine companies. Okay, so you can't do it. Um, uh, the They have a fund by the government that will pay out under certain conditions for people that get harmed from vaccines as a Token. And how I look at it is I say, listen, I will go through what I went through every day, which was hell. You can't imagine what it's like. I was fully aware in my head and I was a hundred percent screaming and pain 24 seven and would just pass out. And that's how I got stressed. They could not give me enough medicine to stop the pain because all the nerves in my body had been destroyed. So every nerve in my body was screaming to my head. We're being on fire. We've been ripped apart, right? And if they they had, I was on fentanyl, methadone, every drug imaginable. Like they, my wife told them, like you, she's like, you have to give him more payments. And they're like, if we give him any more, we're gonna kill him. And they said, if you took half of what he was on right now, they're like, you would be dead. It would kill you immediately. And so they couldn't stop it, right? And I would do that continually yeah. if it meant that my kids didn't have pulp. So. I am not anti-vaccine, but you do not need to take all the vaccinations. It's just not true. And there are certain times you shouldn't. And what happened to me was from an MMR vaccine, I was going out of the country and I got a bunch of shots that really I didn't need to take at all. And they gave them to me all at once. And it was um, the immune system doesn't know how to handle that. It's not natural. It's not normal. It was just check marks in a hospital that they had to check mark. And it was really stupid now that I think about it. And it's something we don't think about. You just trust the providers. At the end of the day, it wasn't a doctor even. It was a nurse or a helper that just walked in and started giving me shots. And I look at it going, we need to have a different conversation. Because how I view it is we try to hide the people that are harmed when they are the heroes. Because I'm not saying they're heroes. But when I look at those people now, to me, they're heroes because I'm like, you're the people that take the fall. So we don't have polio. You're the people that take the fall. So our children are safe in society. We should not degrade you. We should not this. We should thank you and we should support you because we know 2% of the population are going to be very, very harmed. That doesn't mean it's not right. But that means that we have a social responsibility to not treat those people like second-class citizens. I was in meetings, and it was the first time I got, this was before COVID. And I was in a meeting, and somebody asked what happened. And I said, oh, well, I've received the MMR vaccine and others, and that triggered because uh, Guillain-Barre is not a disease. You have it. Everybody has it. It's something that happens that's triggered, right? And one of the people at the meetings literally stopped the meeting. There's five people in this meeting. It was a big insurance meeting and said, listen, that is so rare. It never happens. And he said that like he stopped me from talking and started to explain and talk over me. I didn't even know who the person was. And he got defensive just because I said what happened. That was the first time. And I remember it very clearly. AJ, 
what happened to you is not acceptable and you can't talk about it. And um, I stopped. I stopped because I was like, I don't want to be the bad guy on top of also having to go through the suffering that I went through. Right. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Why do I, why, why should I go through the suffering only to have people tell me, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or it's, they dismiss it or everything else like that. So I'm not anti-vax at all. But at the same time, if you think that you're under 30, right. And you need vaccinations to protect you from something that the odds of killing you or seriously uh, injuring you are less than you getting uh, Guillain-Barre, that's just stupid. That's a bad risk to reward. That doesn't make sense at all, right? And we should have the knowledge to make good risk to reward decisions overall. And it's person to person, right? I, th- I think about now, right? Person I mean, to person. You can't say vaccine without conjuring thoughts of COVID, right? And I think you've been very 100%. clear. Like, this is all pre, but I this think about it now. Pre. Like yeah. the, the, those that argue against the vaccine speak to the statistic, like 99.9% survival rate of COVID, right? Like, I, I don't know, whatever it is, over whatever 99%. Is. I don't know. Yeah. But if you're 64 years old, you're, you know, obese, diabetic with immunocompromised, immunocompr- uh, you know, you're immunocompromised, yeah. Yeah. then your chances are probably greater than 2% of, of oh, something greater. bad happening from COVID. So weigh that risk. It's not a broad spectrum. No, my we father, shouldn't have vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. My father is overweight. My dad too. He's not healthy. He is over 60. And we sat him down and said, dad, you're getting the COVID vaccine because we want you to live. Yeah. And then when they said your children need to get the COVID vaccine, I looked at the doctor and said, you can shove it. Yeah. Yeah. It's two different situations. Very much. And we're trying to classify people in one. Jamie, I don't know what your health status is or anything. I don't I'm care. Good. <laughs> I, I, like, I, but but like, I, if you get the vaccine or not, that is between you and your medical profession. I don't care. I don't want to know. It's not yeah. my business, right? I don't judge anyone for it. I tell people that want the advice. I'm like, you got to talk to your doctor. Now for my dad, no. I'm like, dad, you're getting it because yeah. I care about you and I'm worried about you. And the risk profile for you is really bad. And that would be stupid for you not to get take care of. I can't get vaccines ever again. It's not a lot. So if you go on that, now everybody's going to look on the paper when you go get any vaccination. doesn't matter. It says, have you ever had Guillain-Barre? Right? Now, this brings different light. I got kicked out of a coffee shop in Seattle because I didn't have a vaccine passport. And I said, well, I have a medical exemption. I can't get vaccinations because of medical. And they said, that doesn't matter. We don't care about that. The rule isn't. They made me go sit out in the rain outside while I waited for my food. There was no one in the coffee shop. I was also covered and had a negative test. And it's like, we've just gotten to this point where it's so politicized. And I'm like, we have to have reasonable conversations. We have to be logical about this. And I'm a person that most people think that I should be super, super jaded. I'm not. Yeah. Once again, I'm okay with my sacrifice to help mankind. And I'm okay that I can't run. I'm okay that I'm in pain every single day. I struggle walking and I fall, right? I'm okay with all of that. I'm okay that I'll probably never do the activities that I could before because I'm so happy with the medical advancements and what that's caused. And you can live in both worlds and that's okay. Yeah. It's funny, man. You say about it being politicized. It's crazy that a disease and a vaccination status can be politicized, can be, can be uh, polarized the way it is. It's unbelievable. And, um, you know, the thing for me that I've come to with this is like, you just said it, 
get your vaccine if you want to get a vaccine. Don't get a vaccine if you don't want to get a vaccine. The idea of like the the misinformation, the reason why your accounts were almost taken down. Misinformation is is misinformation in the moment potentially, but it becomes information six months later when it's when it becomes oh actually reality right oh actually this was true we didn't know it then so we vilified and we Joe Rogan's going through that right now right we vilified and crushed you but some of the stuff he's talking about today was you know as as you know well some of the things that are accepted today he was speaking about six months ago as then a year and a half ago which was not only considered misinformation. It was considered outright wrong. It was conspiracy theories. You were not allowed to do it. And there are so many people that lost their voice online because they said things that now today are generally accepted across the board, government and medical, as 100% fact. They don't get to come back online. And I, on my social, was told that me saying what happened to me with a vaccination, which I don't ever talk about it. It was just like one or two times because somebody asked me in social media. They were telling me that my information was false. So they said that it was false that I got a vaccination. It was false that I had Guillain-Barre and that I couldn't speak about it. And if I did, I was going to get taken down. That's interesting because I know that's not false and I don't know who they are, but they are saying something is false and I'll get banned when it clearly isn't. That's concerning. Very concerned. What it really means is they don't want me to have a voice on this subject because they don't like what the narrative may or may not be. Um, that is a total different situation than talking about healthcare. That's not the same thing. Agreed. And that, and the the thing about that I, that really comes to the heart of it for me is about it's, you said voice, the word voice. I think of speech, free speech, all of that. Right. Yes. Not to get into this whole like rant on it, but yeah. But right now it's become a right left issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, left. Oh, the vaccine is the greatest thing, right? Oh, I don't want the vaccine, and the left comes after the right, right? Yeah. You know, but man, I don't know. I can't think of it. Thirty years ago, uh, uh, the rights of the LGBT community were 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 absolutely like, no, we don't. They, oh, they are should not talk. be afforded rights. You should not yes. talk about that, right? You can't talk now, about it. Get out right of now. Today, that would be considered more of a left issue. And the yeah. right might agree with that. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of just the general yeah, theme of it, right? So, yeah. so you have to, if you're a person, this is me, this is my plea to anybody. If you're somebody who, who just can't get, like, why would some idiot out there not get the damn vaccine? Look at the science, all these buzz phrases. Like, why would they yeah. not flip it around to go 20 years ago? What if it were the opposite? What opposite. if you were on the, on the other side of this saying, how are people vilifying me for saying that? Folks in the LGBT community should have the right to marry or, you know, equal rights or, yeah. you know, you shouldn't be vilified or a young boy or a young lady who who is afraid to come out because of being ostracized. That's wrong. Like years ago, man, we don't want you to talk about that. Right. Like it went the other way. AIDS. We don't want to hear about AIDS treatment. We don't want to spend right. our tax dollars on AIDS treatment. Yep. Well, yeah. Uh, Exactly. That's the stuff that bothers me is it's like we're looking in this in this vacuum of right now. I'm right. You're wrong. And you need to be silenced. And it's like careful with that, because when you feel right and they're wrong and you get silenced, like that ain't a great feeling. That ain't a great feeling. Dude. Wow. So today you're in pain. Can you describe that? Like, what does that mean? You're in pain. Like, is it is it like do do you wear out at a certain point of the day? Like right now sitting in front of me, are you feeling yeah, Sensation. so my, my lower legs are um, in pain. Honestly, it's kind of weird because I just I'm just totally used to it. So I, I I'm on a lot of medication. So okay. I'm on um, methadone, which is a tier one drug. It's what they use 
it's the substitute for heroin. Yeah. Now I'm on uh, a lot of other things. It doesn't have the same effects as heroin. Actually, methadone is a wonderful drug because it doesn't affect your mind like at all. Sure. Um, it's outrageously addictive, though. So your body doesn't know how to function when it's not on it, right? Um, so I got off fentanyl, which was my first one. I'm like, I got to get off this drug. That thing is so scary, dangerous. It's not even funny. Um, but I'm on things like venipaxlane. I'm on for, cause I have sharp nerve pains. I have deadening, I have ripping and burning. Um, and I, it, it goes down. If I have activity, it rises. Um, but every morning since it happened, I wake up not because I'm like, oh, it's time to wake up. I wake up because I'm in pain. So yesterday morning, four o'clock in the morning, I open up my eyes and I'm like, I'm done. Can't go back. So I get up and I start moving around and do my thing and uh, just go work while the kids are sleeping. Um, and then I take my uh, medicine. I have things like um, I'll use CBD oils. Great for nerve shocking pains. Sure. So especially out of the hospital, they rub my legs down in it. But I have like they give me oxy, which I hate. I hate any drug that doesn't make me sharp. So I try not to use it. Um, I would rather be in pain and sharp than my yeah. mind. I was going to ask about like marijuana, um, THC, anything like that. But that yeah. probably goes against that. Your your what you just said, your mandate. I got to stay sharp. Yeah, yeah I want to stay sharp. I want to stay focused. I want to be present. Um, there gets to be times and I had this and I, you know, my GoPod's just been awesome. And I was talking with them last fall because I, what I was doing is I was tearing off my meds and I teared down and I've been really forceful about this. I was like, so I, I was really dumb. And like two years ago, I thought, AJ, you know what you're doing. You don't need to take methadone. So I quit methadone cold turkey, which that's like quitting heroin after being on it for years, cold turkey, right? I was vomiting in my wheelchair. I sat and I just went through it. I'm like, nope, I'm not taking the medicine. I'm getting completely off of it. And so I went for two weeks of hell and throwing up. And then I got done and I was like, I did it. Um, but then to stop the pain, I was taking other kinds of medicine that would stop the pain. But I, I thought, oh, I'm not addicted to methanol. That is not smart. Nobody do that. I went to my doctors and they're like, AJ, what are you doing? Your livers are, your or, internal organs are now shutting down. There's a reason why you were on that medicine and they put me back on it. But uh, so I'm, but because I don't like having anything that has a grip on me, I, I teared down and I just was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to go back. And the pain got so bad that it, it even after it'd been a month after I'd gotten off the medicine, and because you never know, right? So you never know anybody that's taking medicine. First of all, um, be open about it and be honest about it. I am addicted to payments because my body can't function without them. I, I have no problem saying that because I also need them, right? But I also know that there's a gray area with pain meds where I don't know if the pain is coming from the pain meds or if it's coming from that. So because of that, I always tear down. After a month of going that, I was clearly just pure pain. And I wanted to just go through it and survive it, but it clouds your mind. You stop being able to function because it, all it is is bells and screaming in your head. And, you know, I found that I'm looking at my children and I don't even know what they're talking about anymore. So from there, I said that my doctor's like, AJ, this is something you may need to accept 
that you're going to have to live like this. Your nerves are destroyed. They're never going to be 100%. That'll never happen. You'll never and not be in pain. So he said, you may not be. Like, I still have hope. I'm going to do therapy. We're doing stem cell treatments, which I couldn't move my lower feet at all. And it went years and I couldn't move my lower feet. I got a big round of stem cells done. Two weeks later, I could move my toes. Um, so Honestly. we're going to go back through and try more of that. So I, I have hope. But he said, you need to be okay with if not. That's a new set, new scope that I'm on in life is that I have hope. I'm pushing for it. But if not, I need to figure out a way to make sure that um, I can be present with my children and be okay and not be clouded. And the medicine is a tool to do that. And I need to become okay with that. So I'm in a really good place with it all and everything, but I'm still really pushing forward. Um, I can run now, but it's, it's, I, I look like kind of like a duck. Um, I, so I, 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 I fall down. I, I can trip stuff. My, my, I don't have good functionality in the ankles, and lower, uh, lower legs, but I don't have braces and I don't need help. So if I'm walking around talking to people, nobody can even tell. And nope. that yeah. was the goal. That was the yeah. goal. So when I was in, um, when I was last time I spoke at GoBundance, yeah. I was in leg braces still. So I've been off it's leg Aspen, braces now. And, yeah. and like, oh, I couldn't tell. You yeah. were, you, you ambulated, no, like not normally, you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. I didn't see it. When you started telling that story, I'm like, really? This guy right now, like he's still in pain. I think the night before you had to go to the hospital, if I'm not mistaken. So before you I actually, when I spoke, I left the hospital. So yeah. I had gone into, um, what is it called? Shock because I had had uh, my bones, since my legs don't work right, my bones and everything hit weird and they tear up on the inside. And I got an internal infection in my leg. So I actually left Go Abundance the first day that I was there because yeah. I woke up in the middle of the night, jackhammering, sweating. They put me on IVs. And the rest of the Go Abundance trip, I was on IVs. And I told the doctor, I said, listen, I'm speaking. So I'm leaving. So what they did is they took an IV. And a lot of people, if you look at that video, when I, you see I have a big coat. Big on, jacket. Yeah. 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 It's because yeah. my IV was attached to my arm and they That's duct taped it. And then after I got done speaking, I went to the stage and I went back to the hospital. And they put me back on tubes. And then um, I left the next day to go home. Um, yeah. But so I didn't get to talk to a lot of people and everything while I was there. I apologize for that. I was just in the hospital the whole time. But yeah. I was on. I was still on leg braces at the time. Um, but I've been out of my leg braces for a year now. And now I walk around. There's nothing you can tell at all unless I start to try to move fast or things like that. And really, that was the goal. Like It was just like, I just want to look uh, a bit normal in actions and interactions. And I want to be able to walk around normally. Um, and we thought if we could get there, life would be incredible and wonderful. And it is, it's amazing. Like I, I, I'm so flipping grateful and I'm so amazed. Every little thing after you go through that, like when you're quadriplegic, I remember the first time I got to drink water. So a lot of people don't realize you're quadriplegic. You can't drink water. I'm getting IVs, but your mind doesn't say, Oh, you're getting water your lips and my tongue was swollen. It was clogging my throat and it was, they bleed. And to me, I was dying of thirst 24 seven and I couldn't drink water. Obviously I had tubes and and couldn't do it. So that first time that I got to drink water after months, it was to say it was amazing as an understatement. It makes makes me think about, because you've still, I mean, you've grown a great business. We'll talk about, uh, you know, partnering with an amazing brand and Brittany and and all of the things that you've done. 
I don't know why this is the way my brain is taking this question. So I'll, a little Go context Let's do it. and then I'll ask the question. So when you have kids, I, yeah. this was my experience anyway. When I had kids and then I heard somebody that didn't have kids talk about how busy they were, I kind of smile inside like, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what busy is. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what I did with my time before kids, right? Like that's yeah. kind of the, the same mantra that most parents have. Like busy yeah. before kids is not a real thing, even though, you know, people, I'm not, you don't have kids. I'm not degrading you for feeling busy, but you but get it. There's there's a difference. hundred percent. It's not right. the same. I, I don't know. It's so for you now, for you now, when you hear people that haven't gone through what you've gone through, not even close, right? An entrepreneur, yeah. say like somebody like me who's struggling with doing this or struggling with doing that. Do you have that sense of, man, you have no idea because of what, what you've gone through and what is that? Well, let me start there. Yeah, does yeah, that, yeah. does that yeah. pop so up for you? It, it's, it's, Actually, I think it, it's like this. First of all, I have the understanding like, okay, come on, you got, you can go through a lot more. At the same time, though, I am very aware of the struggles. So meaning I think I feel it on a more personal note than I would have before. I became sensitive to things that I didn't was never sensitive before about because I didn't understand them, right? Yeah. And so it's like, yes, I'm like, I want to tell them, I'm like, listen, you don't even understand what you can go through. Like you don't comprehend it. Right. Um, and you can do it, right? But at the same time, I also understand that your mind doesn't distinguish. And this is the important thing. Your mind doesn't distinguish the magnitude of problems necessarily. So what someone's going through, in a lot of cases, I view was kind of how I felt and in a lot of circumstances and maybe what I was going through because their mind is telling them this is the end. This is so big. And I am super sympathetic to that. I want to hear about the struggles. And some people are like, you don't need to hear this. This is stupid. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not. That's not how grief works. That's not how suffering works. That's not how worry works, right? And I'm much more in tune to suffering and things like that than I ever was before, right? Death, a lot of people don't understand. I was praying and screaming in my head for months kill me. Why won't you let me die? I was so upset they were keeping me alive because for me, it was just torture. Like give me relief. Right. And so death is not the worst thing in the world at all. Right. At all. And, um, when I look at suffering and feel it, it's not like it's like distinguishable, but it's empowering. So after it happened, I was very empowered. It was like, okay, we need to put context to problems. We need to compartmentalize them. We need to really understand them. And I kind of went out and said, listen, eh, nothing really I can't do. So let's just get to work. I mean, I have four kids. I have nine companies. Um, I have over 60 employees. We, My wife started a school because we didn't agree with the school system. She has hundreds of students, two campuses, and now it's a high school. It's the only business entrepreneurial school in our Acton? state. Acton Academy? Nope. It's uh, oh. called Innovate Academy. It's Innovate. Um, okay. We started out, we pulled our kids out of other private schools and public schools because we didn't agree, and it's exploded. It's uh, focus on um, uh, applicable business and entrepreneurial and economic lessons, meaning it doesn't matter if you want to be an artist, right? Yeah. The design is you need to know how the how these things work so you can apply it to your desires and be successful. And it's that. every kid is on their own. It's guidance. They teach them to, anyways, it's a, it's just exploded. So we have four kids. My wife does that more than full-time. 
I'm working and we're juggling the kids and I've never been happy. I'm well, not overstressed in Well, what has it informed you though? As, as So how has it informed you? So look, there's a whole bunch of entrepreneurship principles that you could read, I mean, volumes of books about, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, real estate investing and building a real estate company and all of that stuff, right? Yes. When you are, when you have not gone through what you went through, you've got the benefit of uh, procrastination, I would say, maybe, yes. right? Yes. After you go through what you go through, for you to build what you built, nine businesses, the school built, a school that you just built, uh, you know, the Cedar Week, Cedar Creek Well, all of the stuff that you've done and built, how has what you've gone through, what principles, I guess, have you extracted, or yes. what are some of the things that are so central do you feel to like the entrepreneur? If they had gone through what you went through and only had a certain amount of time during the day where they're not in pain or a certain amount of time that they didn't even know they were going to have because they thought they were going to die, right, yeah. as recently as a few yeah. years ago. What are some of the principles that you have in place now that you think Guillaume Barre and the struggle you went through have informed you and have allowed you to build what you've built? Yeah, so there's a few. First of all, when I was in the hospital, people did everything for me. I couldn't do anything, nothing. They bathed me. They wiped me down with rags. They everything. I mean, there was no going to the bathroom. That didn't exist. And so um, I lied naked in a bed while people, crews of people in the ICU took care of me. I lost all pride. That was gone. And that was the best thing that ever happened. Um, entrepreneurial people, they study endlessly how to become the person of success. You should really be looking at who are the people that you need to become a success. And you got to learn that this archetype of the self-made millionaire and billionaire is a facade. It doesn't exist. It is a team sport. It is a group and you cannot and will never be able to do it on your own. And the fact that you think you need to become more and that's the problem is killing you. The fact that you aren't finding the best people and that you're not aware of the things that you struggle with and the things that you need is killing your business. It's killing your customers. It's killing your success. So drop the act, start figuring out what you need and start being okay with you not being enough because you never will be. And that's driving you crazy. And it's stupid. It doesn't matter, right? The object's the goal. It's not, it shouldn't be the pride. It should be the goal. And so that's my first. Um, the second thing um, is this idea of time and urgency. If I want to do something, if I think or do it, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to do it. We're just going to do it. And then we're going to figure out how to get things done. Um, I am a big believer and I'm starting what I call a... Uh, Environmental Economic Participation Fund. I'm a big believer in wild spaces and protecting. I'm from Idaho. The vast majority of our state is wilderness. It's nothing but the Rocky Mountains. And it's untouched, unroaded. It's not like, you know, Colorado or Utah. This is endless wilderness that nobody can even go into. And wildlife thrives. And, and it's something that's open for everyone to experience. And I'm a big believer in wild spaces. And I believe that the government, when we carved up what society was going to do, capitalism took over a lot of different things, right? And it took over things like products. It took over things like health. And it took over things like uh, all sorts of stuff, right? And everything that it touched 
just multiplied and was amazing, right? What they did in healthcare, what they did for military, what they did for infrastructure buildings, what they did for products and consumer goods, what they did for lifestyle. It doesn't matter. It's capitalism created this world that is we're so spoiled in, we don't even realize what it was like without it. And it was a sucky place. But when we carved up all of that stuff, we defaulted the environment to the government, meaning the government's in charge of basically protecting the government, uh, the environment. Well, the government has one mode of operation and only one mode. It's just force. So we can either stop you from doing something. We can protect the land by not letting anybody touch it, right? And if you do it, we'll put you in jail. That's not a solution, though, to problems. And what I found was that there was a lot of solutions that wasn't being happened. 90% of all environmental money goes to attorneys. It goes to the court system because what people are now trying to do is because that's the only mode. They're trying to force the government to do something that they want. So environmental money is just wasted. So I said, we're going to figure out ways to stop and solve these problems. My wife wanted to solve education. I'm going to do this. So I looked at other industries like health and education. They have these ginormous endowment funds, which are tens of billions of dollars, because what they did is they took their money and the growth of the economy was parallel to the growth of the business insurance. It was parallel to the growth of um, the education. It was parallel to the growth of all these other nonprofits. So they had compounding resources. And as the economy grew, the resources and ability to solve problems grew. That's not how the environment works. So we're allocating equity, real equity, and I'm putting equity of my deals that I'm giving up into this fund. And this fund will have ownership in the economy. Then that money will go to solve direct needs, meaning it's not going to attorneys, it's not going to politicians. Screw them all. It is going to solve real problems. You have simple problems that solve big things, like road bridges solved massive economic, but plus um, wildlife problems. So that's what we're doing. That's what the fund is. I said, I really believe in this and I don't care about, it's not about donating money. It's about solving the problem. Let's figure out how to solve the problem. And then let's go forward with the mechanism to do it. We did lots of research, uh, research because I'm all about impact. Meaning what it's not just about doing something. It's about getting the most impact out of what you can do. And we kind of laid up with this model and this fund. So we're going. We're moving forward with it. I've had attorneys working on this for two two months. We're going to roll it out in the next six months, um, and then I'm putting my money, my work, everything else where my mouth is. Wow, man! I love the this concept, this ready, fire, aim kind of concept, right? So, so, and it feels like like when I listen to your story, there, and, and maybe you don't even recognize it, but there's a sophistication in your cadence. In, in the in the, the kind of the macroeconomic uh, theories or, or microeconomics uh, points that you make as you tell your story, as you told your story from 04 through now, right? Yeah. But underneath that, underlying that is is sort of a, I don't know, I took one step and then the next step and then the next step. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, we refied this, we took our money out, put it back in the next deal. And like, it's it's unsuffisticated in some way, right? Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's yeah. I took action. I did what I did. And yeah. so this, it sounds like going through Guillain-Barre, going through the paralysis, all of those, all of that darkness and still to this day dealing with it, it just accelerated the who gives a hell? Who gives a, a crap? Who gives a hell? Never heard of who gives a hell? Who gives a crap? I'm just going to roll forward. I'm just going to yeah. do. So how, how does that, does, does, does the idea of failure go to point one, kind of lose your pride? Is the pride gone? The is, idea of failure is this. Failure needs to be controlled. Okay. It is. So failure is a part of the process. And people that are dumb don't control it. 
and they act like it it, it has to it, it can't I can't fail I can't make mistakes right like you know and I'm totally open to say all the mistakes that I make um, I'm very you know say oh dude I sucked at that I got to do this better right so when you look at it you have to admit it you have to own up to it but you have to control it what do you mean when, by that control it yeah look at it so let's say you're taking bets okay. And you're betting on investments, right? There's a lot of different ways and levels to control it. You can control it. So you have risk of capital, right? You have risk of opportunity, and then you have risk of ruin. And you divide these levels of risk up. For me, risk of ruin is the risk that is not acceptable, okay? The risk of capital needs to be controlled and limited. And the risk of opportunity needs to be explored and understood. So I do not want the risk of ruin because that stops you from playing the game. And I don't want any single bet to stop my progress. So I look at it and say, what am I doing? How am I dividing it up? And will any one thing stop me from getting to my goal? Because I know the goal is what's important. The process will figure out the risk associated with the process has to be understood, controlled, and no single point can stop the progress. And so we look at that. We understand risk of ruin. It's one of the main reasons in our strategy that we go, we have to personally guarantee, but then we immediately, after three years, we get our money out and we refine the non-recourse loans. So it's, I understand, I accept some risk, right? I diversify it amongst markets. I protect it on a strategy. I have what I call my margin of stupidity. And this is the epitome of what I'm talking about here. My margin of stupidity is a very important rule for me. Warren Buffett has his margin of safety. I'm not Warren Buffett. I'm not smart like him. So I accept that I'm stupid. And I create what I call my margin of stupidity. First of all, that means that where we invest, the market, the demand, everything associated with it has to be so good that in that investment, I can screw up. I could get stuff wrong and that investment will still be okay, right? This is a big portion of what we do and why we do it. And it's understanding that if I'm investing and it has to go perfectly for it to work out, I shouldn't be doing it, period. It needs to work out and the degree of which it needs to work out can depend on me, but my margin of stupidity can't be broken. And so I look at these things and risk is just about controlling it on your path, accepting that it's there and applying it where it needs to go in a controlled fashion and manner. Amazing. Okay. You like seven questions went through my brain in that moment. <laughs> so, okay, let's, let's do this. Cause I, I, something you talked about as we were going along, I, first of all, the, the, the risk of opportunity, the risk of capital, the risk of ruin. That is like a model. Do you have a PDF of that somewhere? You should have that as a, yeah, like a lead. I, yeah, I do. I have it on something. I, and I should I should build it out even more. It's that funny because amazing. one of the things that I'm not really good at is marketing. I'm hiring a lot of people lately, and that's probably why I've ex exploded. Because I, I suck at this. I need to do better at it. You know, I didn't even talk to people about our performance when we had investors coming with us or anything. I didn't know. And I didn't even know how my performance stacked up to. It wasn't until a month ago that somebody said, hey, you just out of curiosity. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll try you. And all of a sudden, they were like, dude, you're getting what kind of returns? Wow. They're getting, <laughs> and I just never, I'm like, well, it should be based upon the fundamentals, right, of the overall uh, deal. It should yeah, be yeah. based upon the fundamentals of this thing like that. 
And so all of a sudden I had to completely change the way I, I didn't tell anybody about all our companies that went into doing what we did, all the millions that we spent to get the yield and how they were getting that, right? I, I never talked about the fact that our portfolio of value add has had almost a 500% cash on cash return of which 300 or 30% of those have never been refied and have over yeah. 15 million in equity. We have a trailing average of a 52% cash on cash return, never lost a deal and never sold anything. Wow. So it, it like, I didn't even know that I wasn't normal. And I never shared. This is the, like, I started sharing this literally just in the last month. So I'm a horrible marketer. <laughs> well, and that's, that's kind of where my brain stumped there. As you were talking, I was thinking about some of this stuff, the margin stupidity. I, 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 what went through my brain was I had a deal here where we walked away from it because the margin, that margin, I didn't call it that, but I love the margin was so low. Like yeah. if, if it went, if it went the way we think it could, we'd be, I think we'd be okay. Like that was the mindset. It wasn't like, Hey, if, if this or this happens, like it's bad. So we walked away from the deal. But yeah. the other part that you were talking about earlier about, you know, the, uh, the, uh, lose your pride, who are the people that you have, you know, yeah. the, there's no self-made millionaire. We talked about this before we started recording, but let me take this a step back. I've had this theory that I've been working on that, you know, a uh, uh, visionary to be a visionary in a company is sort of earned, right? Like you, you, you've yes. got the vision and you've yep. got a team of people. I don't believe that you need to be all things in real estate. I, I really don't believe you should be all things in real estate when you're yep, a real estate I investor, agree. right? I think there are three superpowers. I think you you can either be the type that's more on the like analytical side, right? Like you can really dive in and help. Like underwriting comes to mind. An integrator, kind of that field general, yep. somebody that can pull, pull things forward. And then a connector networker, marketer, that kind of person, right? Those are the three in my mind, superpowers in real estate investing or really maybe any business type. You've brought in recently she's known as Investor Girl Brit, right? Big following on Instagram. She's got an amazing brand. She, it's funny. She and I only know each other because my accountability partner lives in Saskatoon, where I've heard of nobody from except until my accountability partner and now uh, Brit. So you brought her in as as to, to leverage her genius in marketing. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it was that awareness of, we, I don't have the reach. We don't have anything else like that. I So, and I met Brit who was, years ago, uh, through Brandon Turner. So sure. her and Brandon Turner were friends and, um, we, she was in commercial real estate and she was doing multifamily and some other stuff. And we started putting our team together, um, to do syndications, things like that. And to be honest, I was like, I don't really understand marketing or this community and I don't really want to. And so I was mentoring her at the time as she was going through commercial real estate and everything. And I said, Hey, well, why don't we just part off and you take this part of uh, this deal that we can do and you can do that communication, and everything else like that. She's like, sure. So we teamed up on that one, went great. And so we've done like four or five other deals together, but yeah. it's exactly like that. It's this idea that it's like, I, I'm not good at everything. Right. And, I'm, and she doesn't need to be either. And right, nobody right. is right. I Let her be in her zone of genius. Yeah. hundred percent. And yeah. um, it worked out fabulously. Yeah, she she's got like I guess she's got great influence, and it's funny. I, I I don't know if you know Mark Henteman. He's a, a GoBundance guy, but um, Family Guy writer. Maybe you've heard a story, but he's got Quantum Capital. I the same. I partnered up with him. Now I don't have the brand of Investor Girl Brit yet. Hopefully yeah. one day I will. But that's my zone of genius in this space, right? I love investor relations. I love marketing. I love uh, capital raising. So I spend time in that within within Quantum Capital. That's the partnership that I have with him versus me trying to do all things to everybody. The question though is when is it 
when do, when do you decide to bring somebody on? Maybe it's something you haven't done yet. Maybe you haven't hit that optimal time. Like maybe in the next business, maybe you will. But when do you bring somebody in? When do you bring in uh, uh, the people that that you need to have success with? Is it right away? Do you have to do you have to grind for a period of time before you bring people in? When do you when do you tend to do that or recommend that you do that? So this is a man. This is a good question, and this is an art form as well as more of a logical process. So really, how I look at it, and I'm writing an entire book on this. It's called the impact system. It's a system that we have in place and it's a system to be able to scale. And the system is understanding where you are at in the process, diagnosing the problems that you have, allocating certain problems that need to be done by you, are better fitted for other people, understanding when those things should occur. And this is a this can be lots of things within a business. This can be capital constraints, this can be deal constraints. And what we're looking at is the overall ROI on activity, meaning how much, what are the most important and impactful things that you need to do for your business? And I call it my impact corner. And I try, you try to, I try to live in, I try my executives to live in the impact corner. The impact corner is a combination of things that I am naturally gifted towards and a combination of the things that are the most impactful to the goal, to the goal. A lot of people say, no, it's impactful on the business. I'm like, just because it's impactful on the business to run day to day doesn't mean you should be doing it. If you are the entrepreneur, if you are the owner, if you're the one trying to get the company to grow, that's the most impactful thing because it won't happen without you, right? So I have employees that I call 200 percenters and then I have 100 percenters. My 100 percenters are employees that need to execute at 100 percent all the time to make sure that that business is running effectively, efficiently. These are lots of times on the ground people at locations, right? Things like that. They're 100%. They need to be making sure that our business runs at 100%. The 200%ers are the people that I hire to come in to make the company double. They need to be always focusing on doubling our company and achieving our goal, right? And my impact corner is spent on coaching them. It's creating opportunity. And your impact corner grows as your company grows. So it's a way that I use in a, in a format because this exact question that I feel like there's never really a lot of answers to. I feel like a lot of books, it's A, and then you have Z, and nothing in between, because they don't know what to do. So I just created a format, a system. All my executives have to follow it. You audit your entire days. We take the audits of, of your day on 30-minute increments. You categorize it based upon activities. We look at the activities and how they apply to the end goal. We look at the percentage. We look at your individual strengths and weaknesses with those activities how they're, uh, if they're best suited, if they're not, right? From there, we take those activities, we categorize them, we um, start to measure them. Then we go on to the next phase where we do KPIs, things like that. Then we understand them from there. That is segments of business. I also use those segments of the business as job descriptions, roles. We may third party it out, or some of them are just automate or just hire out uh, completely. Then from there, um, you fix all of them, you, you change all of them, you do what you need to do, and then you're back to your impact corner at the end of a uh, quarter. So it's a quarterly basis that I, I do it on. And then your impact corner should shift. Now I can work on more important, better things to get us towards the goal, all while laying the foundation that is sustainable to continue running the company at 100%. And a lot of people have a hard time doing this and this balance and when should we do this, when should we not, right? And it's a system, right? It's not a spur of the moment. It's not a gut feeling thing. It's a system of execution. And that's kind of what we built in our framework. And so I, I, I had so much, I spoke at it at a bigger conference or bigger pockets conference and it 
few others. And we just had so much demand. I'm making it into a book that'll come out in, um, it's coming out in June, I think. June. Okay. I was going to ask you, when's that book out? Cause I need to order it. I need to pre-order it whenever the hell that comes out. So no, <laughs> that's an amazing thing to put into the world. It's needed for sure. We're, we're running low on time. And I want, I think I told you like, yeah, we might not need the whole hour and a half, but we need the whole hour and a half. Um, <laughs> Talk a little bit about since you know you've been a member of GoBundance for at least a couple of years now. Like impact of GoBundance. Why are you in GoBundance? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so you know GoBundance is a really interesting group. And when I got out of the hospital, um, I didn't know what I was going to do with life. So there's a few things that were really impactful to me. Um, I was actually I was paralyzed. I was on a scooter um, in Hawaii. I took my kids. We're like, we got to we got to get out of here. We got to we got to take a break. So got me in my wheelchair and we went to the kids to Hawaii that Alani Disney plays one played, right? And I was sitting there on the sidewalk on my little scooter, my you know, paralyzed legs, and just kind of looking at the ocean, trying to figure out what the heck I was doing. This guy walked by um, and he looked familiar. I didn't even understand why. Started chatting with him. It was Brandon Turner. He asked me to come out and um, we started talking and, you know, just understanding, like, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life and things like that. And he was very pivotal in that. He told me a lot about um, GoBundance. And then I thought this is a good chance for me to get into something as I have to almost rebuild and recreate a lot of things. And I have to really understand what I should be doing moving forward here. And so I joined GoBundance because of the people in it and my GoPod um, my, uh, Mike McCarthy's in, uh, my GoPod and, um, you know, they have just been like incredible. Right. And so, um, it's, I, I got into it, I think almost as a, a kind of a compass to understand myself. Right. Um, and now I look at GoBundance, right. As a, uh, a, a system of support and a system of, uh, or a, a way for me to get information and to get resources and help in that I've never had before. And I'm never part of any mastermind or anything before I was paralyzed. So it was always just me. I was by myself. Right. And it's really nice to be with a group of people that are thinking the same way you are. And you don't feel weird about sharing things and you don't feel like I'm going to be judged. Right. This is the only podcast I would ever talk about something like a vaccination or something else like that. I would never do it. Right. But in GoBundance, I feel comfortable talking about these things. And I feel comfortable that we can have high-level discussions. And I'm going to get resources as well as information that can be directly applied to my situation and life to improve it. And amazing. Yeah, same. For me, it's been just something where I, I just never thought... I, ne I never realized the power of being able to be completely vulnerable and open in conversation with people, especially other men, right? You know, and, and, yeah. to, and to kind of go there. So it's been amazing. Um, okay, let's talk about what's coming up for you. You mentioned the book. Talk a little about where, where you know, like the book you have out, the book that's coming out. Give us the timeline of everything, where people can follow you. How do we get yeah. more AJ Osborne? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's, it's really simple. Uh, AJ Osborne online. But if you're interested in self-storage, I... I'm true to my promise. I made in a hospital. We give everything out 100% for free. All information, we do it on YouTube, but our podcast, which is Self-Storage Income, it we teach everything, right? 
Um, the book is on Amazon. That's the promo. So anybody that's really into self-storage. Other than that, I have my personal podcast, which I talk a lot about building private equity companies, things like that. That's just under the AJA Osborne brand. And at Cedar Creek Wealth is for um, our you know, people that want to invest alongside us, that want to come in, that want to be a part of what we're building and what we're creating, and to a part of our unique investing system uh, that we have. We don't finance people out. A lot of people, they go at the refinance, they kick the investors out, things like that. That's not that's contrary to my goal, where people are coming in to build wealth and income alongside us. Yeah. So we don't do that. Um, and I want to get them their money back, just like us in that three-year period. So we're happy to accept if somebody wants to come in, do that. That's Cedar Creek Wealth. Um, but yeah, we have lots of resources, tools. I, I spend a lot of time doing this. This is where my impact is. So my impact corner is designated by um, education. So all this stuff that I'm doing, the reason is, first, I made a promise, but then also, too, it creates deal flow. It creates investors and partners with us. I don't have a catch where I'm selling a course, something at the end. Nobody needs to do that or buy that. That's just not how I work. It's not that I have anything wrong with that. But the sure. purpose of doing it is so that we can partner up with people and we can create um, opportunities. So I believe that you know what the, the goal of the entrepreneur and the business owner, right, is you are putting together the um, the environment in which opportunities can grow. So instead of forcing, right, that may not be the best ones. You create an environment, opportunities grow, and then you can pick the best ones for you. And that's what we're trying to do. Amazing. Wow, AJ, I feel truly blessed to have you on, man. Thanks for, I, I think I texted you out of the blue, like, hey, you want to do the podcast? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, Thanks sure. for texting me. <laughs> Happy to support, man. No, I appreciate it. Man. Like, I, I just, I, again, I've been following you and tracking you. And I, I mean, that first time you spoke on stage, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was Aspen, right? With the jacket, yeah. the whole thing. I can yeah. remember the entire thing because the story, you know, I wasn't expecting, I don't think anybody was expecting that, that, that unless some yeah. people knew your story back then, like, whoa, yeah. whoa, no, what? this is the, no, this is the paralyzed, he was paralyzed, look at him, he's, you know, it was, it yeah. was so, it was one of those moments you remember when you think of somebody, right? I think of you, I yeah. think of that moment and having followed you, especially recently and some of the partnerships uh, with people we mentioned about Brittany and others that are, yeah. that are really interesting. Uh, man, it's been, it's been amazing getting to know you and I've, I've got a ton of lessons I took away. So thank you for that. I'm happy to help. Thanks, man, for asking me on. This was this was a blast. It was great talking. Appreciate you. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 